Sorry for a little delay. We're having some audio problems. We're trying to resolve, and I'm not sure we've resolved them. Um, <clears throat> but we're glad that you're here. We have 94 present this morning. That's the largest number we've had since this pandemic started, and we appreciate the presence of everyone. Uh, any who are visiting with us, we're glad that you are here. We're glad that Dick and Jennifer both are back with us after having surgery, and glad they're able to be out with us this morning. <clears throat> encourage you to get a Bible and follow along with us. And remember, we're meeting here again this evening. We're going to be looking at Galatians 5 this evening. As a basis for our study, we'll talk about how you did run well. What did hinder you or who did hinder you? We'll talk about that this evening at 5.30. The principle that stimulates us and refreshes us and excites us and uplifts us and then motivates us to do what we ought to be doing is the Christian's hope that he has. You see, when we focus on the fact that we have the hope of eternal life, and we have hope for something better beyond this life, that does refresh us, and it does uplift us, and it does excite us, and it does motivate us to be and to do what we ought to do and, and be. The books of Titus and 1 Peter begin on the note of hope. No, they're not the only books that mention hope. A number of books will mention the hope somewhere toward the middle of the book or maybe toward the end of the book or somewhere in the book it'll mention the hope of eternal life and mention it as here is a result of, of uh, some principle that results in eternal life. Or it may be because you do have eternal life, here's what ought to happen. But it's interesting, these two books begin on the note of eternal life. Because there is hope, therefore, here's some things that follow. In 1 Corinthians 15, we learn that without hope, we're of all men most miserable. That's the King James wording of 1 Corinthians 15 and in verse 19, that if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, we're of all men most pitiable. The New King James and others will say, but this one says the most miserable. That is, you are miserable. We live a miserable life. If this is all we have, there's nothing better beyond this life that we have to enjoy. When we lose sight of our hope, then here's some things that follow. When we lose sight of hope, we end up having some doubt. And perhaps even little or no confidence at all. If we lose sight of that hope, then we don't have anything beyond but it's also true that the other extreme comes to play, and that is, we have little thinking about the future, and we reach the point we just don't care, because we've lost sight of hope. So you see someone, for example, that is doubting concerning their salvation, they have very little confidence about their salvation, they seem to be worried about their salvation, it may be they've lost sight of their hope. But on the other end of the spectrum, someone who is quite careless in the way they live, it's because perhaps they have lost sight of the hope they have. So let's talk this morning about the Christian's hope. Last week we talked about hell and the, the terribleness of hell and how that's a motivating factor. Let's look at the flip side of that coin and let's talk about the Christian's hope. Let's begin with this. Let's talk about the child of God is to have hope and confidence and assurance. The child of God is to have hope and confidence and assurance. So let's start with looking in our Bibles, at Romans chapter 8, if you will, we can know that we are faithful children of God. 
In other words, I can know that I have become a Christian and that I am viewed as God, from God as a Christian, or God views me as a Christian, and that God views me as a faithful Christian. You say, how do you know? Well, let's go to Romans 8 and in verse 16. In Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about hope that we'll get to a little bit later, but I want you to notice before the hope, here's something we have to know. Look at verse 16. He said, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do I know I'm a child of God? When the Spirit of God agrees with my spirit. How does that work? Well, the Spirit of God has revealed in the Word what I'm to do to become a Christian. The things that I have to obey, the things I have to believe, the things I have to perform in order to become a Christian. Now, my spirit, that is myself, I know whether I've done that or not. I have to believe. Well, I know I've believed. I have to repent. I know I've repented. I have to acknowledge my faith. I know I've done that. And I have to be baptized. I know I've done that too. And so because I've done that and I believe that, and consequently now I know I am a child of God, I know I'm a Christian. Now I can know I'm faithful by this very same token. I can read what the scriptures have to say and I can know that indeed I am a child of God. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13 and in verse 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. I can examine myself and know whether or not I'm in the faith. I can know whether or not I am what God would have me to be. I can know whether or not I'm pleasing and acceptable unto God. By the way, that's written in the context of Paul coming and thinking perhaps that he may have to rebuke some things when he gets there. And I can know that I'm living in the faith or not. I can know whether I'm in harmony with the faith or not. Let's go again to Luke chapter 10 and in verse 20. Luke chapter 10 and in verse 20. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I can know my name is written in heaven, and I can rejoice as a consequence of that. So I can have hope. I can know that indeed I'm a faithful child of God. My name is written in heaven. But let's consider this. There is hope for the Christian. Now I know I'm a child of God. I can know that. But can I know that I have hope of eternal life, that I can have eternal life, and that indeed it's promised to me? Let's go to Romans chapter 5. As you're turning to Romans 5, let me remind you that in Romans 5, that he's talking about the benefits of being a child of God. He's talked about being justified by faith in chapters 1 to 4. Now here is the benefit of being justified by faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we can rejoice in the hope if I'm now a child of God. But let's go further. Notice now at verse verse 3. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing the tribulation produces perseverance, that is endurance, and perseverance or endurance, character. One translation says, approvedness. That it's a character that shows you stand approved of God. If I've made it through the trial, that shows I stand approved unto God. I can know I'm approved of God. And character, are you watching now at verse 4? And hope. Now then, when I've gone through the trial and tribulation and I make it through that, that shows I stand approved of God, and therefore I can have the hope of eternal life. 
But let's go again. Let's go this time to Romans chapter 8. You're at the same opening. Turn a page or two over to chapter 8. I said at verse 16 there was more to follow. Let's see what follows. I am then a child, verse 17 says, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. If I can know I'm a child of God, verse 16, then I can know that I have the hope of eternal life. Let's go further. Look at verse 19. He said, For the earnest expectation of the creature eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, there's more in that context, but that establishes our point. There is hope indeed for the child of God. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. What's important about Hebrews 10? Chapter, the book of Hebrews, not only chapter 10, but the entire book is written in the context of persecution where the pressure is on to try to keep them from continuing their service to the Lord. Now one of the things that should press them on is the fact you have the hope of eternal life. So let's notice in chapter 10 as he begins this exhortation. Notice in chapter 10, I say begins, that's not the beginning of the book, but that's the beginning of the exhortation section. The principle is all before that. Here is the beginning of the exhortation, beginning at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. We have hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for his faithful who promised. Based on the faithfulness of God, I can know I have the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 26 and 27. In contrast, if we sin willfully after we've received a knowledge of the truth, there's no more sacrifice for sin. There's no more sacrifice for sin if... I sin willfully. But what if I don't sin willfully? Well, then there is a sacrifice that I have. Now notice now at verse 35. Verse 35, Therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't cast your faith down, because if you hold on to that faith, it has great reward. There's something in the future. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. There's that hope. Now look at verse 39. Verse 39, we are not of those who draw back unto perdition, but those who believe are, meaning continue to believe to the saving of the soul. That's eternal salvation mentioned at verse 39. Now let's go one more time to that, to 1 John chapter 2. We're trying to drive home the principle that we as children of God can know and be assured that we have hope of eternal life. Go to chapter 2 of 1 John. You know, remember chapter 1 talks about walking in the light. Chapter 2 talks about the contrasted darkness. Now in the midst of that, he says at verse 25, and this is the promise he promised us, eternal life. God gave us a promise, and you can be assured of the promise, there is eternal life. Chapter 5 now, turn two or three pages over to chapter 5 and in verse 13. Chapter 5 and 13, these things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. Here's something you can know. He's talked about knowledge all through the book. You can know you have eternal life. Now go further. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence we have, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know He hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have petitions that we have asked of him. That is, I can be assured God's hearing and answering my prayers because I'm doing that which is acceptable and I can know I have the hope of eternal life. Now let's define hope. Hope has to do with desire coupled with expectation. That's what constitutes hope. 
Now, if we have, for example, just desire. Suppose we have desire for something, but there is no expectation. We don't say we hope for that. If you desire, for example, to, uh, for your boss to give you uh, a triple pay next year, you say, I would desire that. That would be just great. But you don't go around saying, I hope that they're going to increase my pay triple next year. You don't say that because you're not expecting that to happen. If you're expecting to pay higher taxes next year, you don't say, I hope to pay more taxes next year because you don't desire that. If there is the desire to go to heaven and then there is the expectation of going to heaven, then we have hope. Here's the point. Any passage like all of these that say we have the hope of eternal life say I can have not only the desire, but I can have the expectation. More about how that goes about in just a moment. But now let's talk about the ground of hope. In other words, on what basis can I say? Is it that I just say, I want to go to heaven, and so I know I'm going? Or is there some basis on which I can say, I know I have hope because of whatever that of is? Well, let's see. Well, it's not based upon merit. In Ephesians 2 and in verse 10, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So I'm saved and can be saved, but it's not through works of my own merit. In other words, it's not something I've done so that I think, you know what, I deserve to go to heaven. Look at all the good I've done. More about that in just a moment. It's not on some constant, unconditional cleansing. There is a concept, even among brethren, it's among the Calvinists, but even some brethren have this concept that we call continuous cleansing, that the grace of God is just like a river washing through you all of the time, and no matter what thoughts you have, what deeds you have that is ungodly, the blood of Christ is constantly washing away your sin. So you could curse, and without even repenting of that, God's going to wash that away. You could commit adultery, I suppose, and God's just going to wash that away. You could commit other sins because there's just this constant cleansing of the blood of Christ without any condition. Well, 1 John 1 and verse 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So let us go to 1 Peter. That was one of the books. Remember one of the two books that starts on the note of, of hope? Let's see what he says about that in that book that starts on hope. He tells us it's on the basis of God being God. God himself gives us hope. How so? Let's see. Look at 1 John chapter, or 1 Peter rather, chapter 1 and in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy have begotten us again unto a living hope. Blessed be the God who's begotten us again unto a living hope. The word blessed there is the word from which we get our word eulogy. What is a eulogy? It's praise. When you go to the funeral and, some, and they say, well, uh, so-and-so is going to give the eulogy. What does that mean? They're going to tell good things about them. What a good person they were. And they praise the person. That's what we do at funerals. We like to say good things about them. Well, eulogy be given to God. What does that mean? Praise be given to God because he is the one that has given us this living hope. Look at verse 5. Five of the verse, same chapter, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We're kept by the power of God. Were it not for the power of God guarding and protecting our faith and our salvation, we have no hope at all. But let's go further. Same context. 
The resurrection of Christ gives us that hope. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. Are you reading with me now? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does that mean? That means because Jesus was raised from the dead, and I see abundant evidence of that, I can be assured the dead can be raised. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, that gives me confidence that indeed He's the Son of God. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, I am confident that anything He said in His Word must be true. So by the resurrection of Christ, that gives me assurance of my hope. You sit through a class, for example, let's say we're having a Bible class on a Wednesday night and we're studying evidence of the resurrection. And you say, I already believe in the resurrection of Christ. I already know Jesus was raised from the dead. I don't need all of this. And this is really not helpful to me because I need something that helps me. I don't need to know all about the evidence of the resurrection. You see, every evidence of the resurrection of Christ is evidence that you have hope. It's encouraging to you. The more evidence I see that God is and His Word is true, that gives me assurance that indeed I have the hope of eternal life. But let's go further. Same context, same book, same chapter. Look at verse 3. By the mercy of God, the compassion of God, God's compassion on those who have, on whom there is a need for pity. God's pity upon them. Seeing their lowly condition and lifting them up from that, He gives us hope. Notice again verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to not His mercy, but His abundant mercy, He's begotten us again unto a living hope. So on what ground can I say I have the hope of eternal life? By the mercy of God. But may I add to that the diligence. I'm just going to make this reference in passing because we're coming back. We're not neglecting 2 Peter 1. And we'll come back to that and study it more thoroughly in just a moment. But 2 Peter 1 in verse 5 says, Giving all diligence, adding to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, etc. Verse 10 said, Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So the basis on which I can be sure of my hope is the diligence that's mentioned at verse 5 and verse 10. We're coming back to that in a moment. So here's what we've established. That the child of God can have hope and confidence and assurance. I can know I'm a child of God. I have hope. And here's the ground for that hope. Let's move secondly to this. Let's talk about what hope eliminates. If, if I study my word and I become a become convinced of what the Word reveals, and now I have hope, and I truly have hope in my heart, there's going to be some things that are eliminated in my life. Like what? Well, hope does this. It eliminates hopelessness. They don't agree. In other words, if you have hope, you don't have hopelessness. If you are hopeless, you don't have hope. So it eliminates hopelessness. Hopelessness is no feeling of assurance. Do, do you have that kind of feeling about your spirituality and, and the life beyond the grave that you have no feeling of assurance? You just don't really feel good about the future. Well, that's a spirit of hopelessness. Well, you don't really know for sure if, I'm a, if God views me as a Christian. And I'm not really sure if God views me as faithful. Not sure about that. I really don't know if I'd go to heaven if I died at this moment. I'm not sure about that. That's a spirit of hopelessness. Or I just don't feel like I've lived the kind of life in such a way that I could say I'm going to enter into heaven. 
And I really don't think I measure up to other people. I look around and I see people that I think are stronger, that do more, and are more active, and so consequently I just don't feel like I, I measure up. Now, what are some reasons for that hopelessness? What are some reasons for it? Well, perhaps sometimes it may be because of inadequate teaching on the subject of hope and sin and salvation. Now, when I say inadequate teaching, at times it may be adequate teaching, but we didn't adequately heed or listen or comprehend. And evidence of that? Well, the disciples, for example, were confused about the kingdom, weren't they? Very confused. I think they had adequate teaching about the kingdom. I don't think I can question the teaching of the Lord and say, well, he didn't teach them accurately. He did teach them accurately. They just didn't comprehend accurately, did they? So it may be our failure to under, get people to understand what hope is all about, how hope works. Or maybe the nature of sin, you'll see more evidence of that in a moment, or how salvation works, that they have the feeling of hopelessness. Sometimes people are unsure about their baptism. They look back and think, you know what, I don't think I understood or maybe I had the wrong motive. I was just baptized to hush my wife up, and, and so she quit harping on me, and so that's why I was baptized. And so they have a feeling of hopelessness now. Or more common than those is where one begins to grow, and after about five or six years or ten years of growing in knowledge, they think, you know what, I should have known back then what I know now, and so I don't think I, my baptism was good. Here's, somebody, here's something else. It may be that someone knows of some sin or sins in their life. You say, why, why do you feel hopeless? Well, it may be because they know something's going on in their life that they're not willing to give up. They're not willing to quit that sin. I've had a number of Bible studies with people that we get started and they, they, there's something that's amiss and come to find out there's something they're practicing or doing they're not willing to give up. It may be drinking, it may be gambling, it may be something else, but I'm not willing to part with that, and so they're willing to walk away in a hopeless condition. The Bible tells us in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. We understand that, and that causes hopelessness. But listen carefully to this, because this will be important for some, another point in a moment. Some people have a spirit of hopelessness, because they're constantly told how terribly sinful they are. What do we mean by that? Well, there's some people and some Christians who think that we sin constantly. We all do. You are right now. You're sinning right now, they think. You're in a state of sin right now. In fact, we sin 24 hours a day. We're just in a constant state of sin. We all are. We're all just a bunch of terrible sinners all the time. And you're sinning right now. Nothing you can do about it. You're just in a state of sin. In fact, you can't go five minutes without sinning. And for some, if they are convinced of that concept... It's not hardly worth trying. I, I'm working hard. I'm trying to serve the Lord. I'm trying to quit sin. And you tell me I'm just in a constant state of sin all the time. It's not worth it. I just throw up my hands in a state of helplessness and hopelessness. Now, I want to suggest to you that hope does not require perfection. That's a misconception about hope. So let's open our Bibles to 2 Peter. Let's start in Ephesians 2. We'll come back to 2 Peter in a moment. So how... How could you say that hope is not based upon perfection? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, the fact that we need grace shows it's not based upon my perfection. By grace are you saved, verse 5, verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. You see, if my salvation is based upon my perfection, I don't need grace. I need grace because I've sinned. 
So if I say, well, you know, I think perfection is how you're going to be saved. That's how you have hope. Then none of us have any hope. No hope at all. It's not based upon perfection. If so, you don't need grace. You don't need the blood of Christ. You need the blood of Christ to wash away your sin. If you're perfect, you don't need the blood of Christ. But now let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. Be turning to 2 Peter 1. A very familiar passage to us all. There are some matters that are absolute matters in the Bible. And in those matters, every one of us can be perfect. We did exactly without flaw what God asked us to do. I'll give you evidence of that in a moment. There are some matters in God's will that are relative where we can never be perfect. It means they're varying degrees. That's what we mean by relative versus absolute. Some things there are no varying degrees. You either did it or you didn't. There are some things where there are varying degrees. Let me give you evidence of that, and let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're coming to it in a moment. We're not there yet. There are some things that are absolute where there are no varying degrees, and we can be absolutely perfect. For example, baptism being immersion. You either went under the water or you didn't go under the water. And you say, well, I was baptized. I went completely under. Then your immersion is perfect. That aspect of your baptism. Now, your motive might have been another thing. Why, why were you immersed? But I'm just focusing on was your baptism immersion? You, it's not a thing where you go around saying, you know what? I think my immersion is getting a little better. I'm better in immersion this year than I was last year. That's absurd. <laughs> you don't improve on that. You either were immersed or you weren't. You're perfect or you're not. All right? Here's another matter. Baptism being for the remission of sins. Anybody ever go around saying, you know, I think I'm improving in my baptism for the remission I'm a little better this year than I was last year. I'm, I'm improving in that. No, you don't improve. You were either baptized for the remission of sins or you weren't. And in that matter, you are perfect. Here's another matter. The Lord's Supper on the first day. When you took of the Lord's Supper, I'm not asking about where your mind was, but did you take of it on the first day? This is the first day. And if you partook of the Lord's Supper, in that aspect, you are perfect. You don't improve on that. Well, I'm getting a little better it's, it's, um, it's more of the first day now than it used to be. No, you're perfect in that. That's absolute. There is no room for improvement there. There are some matters, though, that are relative where there are varying degrees where you never will be perfect. Now let's go to our text in 2 Peter chapter 1. We call these the Christian graces. Add to your faith virtue. What about faith starting with? Are there varying degrees of faith? Well, sure, the Bible talks about weak faith and strong faith, doesn't it? And so has your faith grown? Can you go around saying, my faith is getting stronger? I'm improving. Sure you can. Because there are varying degrees of faith. Well, let's take another matter. Add to your faith virtue to virtue knowledge. What about knowledge? Are there varying degrees of knowledge? You have more knowledge now than you used to have. Can you improve in your knowledge? Certainly so. Let's take another matter. What about self-control and what about godliness and what about kindness? Are those areas where we can grow and improve in their varying degrees where one has more kindness than another? One has more self-control than another. One has more kindness than another. And in those areas, you never reach perfection. You can never say, you know what, I'm perfect in knowledge. I couldn't, I couldn't have any more knowledge if I tried. Nobody ever reaches that point. Nobody. Same thing with faith. Could your faith never grow? No. 
Could it not grow anymore? Have you maxed out so your faith can't get any stronger? No. Watch this. That lack of profession is, uh, per perfection is not sin. You say, how do you know? Well, if that lack of perfection is sin, I'm not perfect in knowledge, therefore I'm sinful, then I can never get out of a state of sin, can I? I can never be forgiven of sin. I'm always in a state of sin. That lack of perfection is not sin. It could be, because here's the key. The key is diligence. I said I'd come back. Let's go to the context now of 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse 5. Giving all diligence. What's diligence mean? Doing the best you can do. Giving it everything you can. Add to your faith, virtue to virtue, knowledge. Look at verse 10. Be even more diligent. What's the key? How do I, I, can I be sinful in my lack of knowledge? Certainly so, when I'm not doing the best I can do. But you see, someone can be doing the best they can do, and they measure here, and someone else is doing the best they can do, and they measure here with knowledge. And your knowledge and my knowledge may vary. Yours may be above mine, but I may be doing the best that I can do. I can't do any better. I'm working as hard as I can at growing in knowledge. But I haven't reached the level that you're at. But I'm not sinful because I'm not as knowledgeable as you. I'm sinful if I'm not trying to grow in my knowledge. You see the point that we're making? So what I want you to understand is lack of perfection doesn't constitute sin. So you say, I'm not perfect, so therefore I'm in a state of sin. No, no, none of us are perfect, flawless. That doesn't mean I'm in a state of sin because of that. Now, let's go further. Let's understand that what hope just eliminated, if I have hope, that eliminated this hopelessness here. But it eliminates something else. It eliminates the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is carelessness. What is carelessness? That's the opposite extreme. That is, here's hopelessness over here, but there's carelessness, carelessness over there. The Christian is to have hope. That eliminates both extremes. So let's go back to the idea of carelessness. Let's give some examples. Let's take Lot's wife, for example. Turn back to Genesis chapter 19. We'll quickly make a reference in Genesis 19. You remember when God said he was going to destroy Sodom? He told Lot and all of his family and took angels to direct them out that they were to leave Sodom and have nothing to do with it. And God had said, verse 17, escape for your life and look not behind you. Don't do that at all. I want you to get out of here and I want you to, to escape for your life and look not behind you. Flee to the mountains, but get out of here, but don't look back. Now look at verse 26. But, but his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. God said, don't do that. She was careless and had to look back. Out of curiosity, perhaps, she looks back. And that's an example of carelessness. Nadab and Abihu, we'll quickly mention them as well. Remember, they were the sons of Aaron, and they brought strange, unauthorized fire before the Lord. They're attempting to worship God. They're not giving up on religion. They're not giving up on God. But they brought what they thought they should offer rather than what God had directed. They had become careless. Here's another example of carelessness. Uzzah, 2, Kings, 2 Samuel chapter 6. You remember God had directions for how to transport the ark. The ark had been gone for about 70 years and now they're trying to bring it back and they put it on an ox cart and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. Remember that? And God struck him dead there. That's careless. Ness. He's not taking thought. 
Here's another example, the young prophet. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 13, God had told him, do not eat bread nor eat, uh, drink water nor return by the same way you came. He understood that, I know he did. Because he explained it to King Jeroboam in verse 9. And at verse 18, 17 and 18, he explained it to the old prophet with the same clarity he'd explained it to King Jeroboam. And yet, when the prophet lied to him and told him, come home with me and eat bread, because I too, my prophet, and an angel spoke to me and said, come home with me and eat bread, the text says that he went back and he ate bread with him. Verse 26 tells us this was the one that was slain by the lion, is that young prophet that had been disobedient to the will of the Lord. He indeed was careless. Let's give some examples of carelessness today. Carelessness might be seen in worldliness. How could we become careless? Well, it might be social drinking. It might be immodesty. It might be filthy language. Filthy movies. It might be the dancing. It might be that we become loose in our thinking. Where today we are accepting things that was once condemned by the world. You see, many of the things that some of our brethren are practicing in worldliness, for example, and some of our own brethren are defending and not condemning in the pulpit in their preaching and teaching was condemned in denominational pulpits 50 years ago. Some of the best sermons you'll find on dancing can be found uh, from denominational preachers who saw the sin and saw what was wrong with it. They preached hard against it, and so did brethren. We may have become loose and we accept things now that were once condemned. Or we're more tolerant because we're being shaped by the world. We're becoming careless. Maybe we slack off in our Bible study, slack off in our praying, and slack off in our spiritual interest. Maybe our attitudes are changing and morphing toward worship. Maybe toward marriage or toward morals. Do you have the same attitude toward the worship of God that you had ten years ago, five years ago? A year ago? Or is your attitude changing, morphing, so that you're a little more tolerant and it's less important than it used to be? That may describe a spirit of carelessness. And let's talk about why that might be the case. Here's some reasons for that. Number one is just simple apathy where we just don't care. That's what apathy is. You don't care. The one who has that spirit of hopelessness on the other side might care, but they just don't think they have hope. But on carelessness on the other extreme, they don't care. Maybe they're overconfident and they minimize wrongdoing. I cite Lamentations 1. When, when Jeremiah was preaching, they're going into captivity. Remember that? Lamentations raised the point. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? They treat it like it's no big deal. We're going to captivity. Big deal. Big deal. Maybe we feel the good outweighs the bad. We might be self-righteous. In other words, we look at others, we're doing the same thing, but we think we're better than someone else who's doing the same thing. Or maybe we think this one little sin won't matter that much. It's not that big of a deal, so we're minimizing the wrong. Or maybe we have this misconception that grace covers my sins of ignorance and weakness. God's gracious and God will just forgive me of all of my wrongdoing. Let's look at a couple of warnings here. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about carelessness. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning at verse 11, he talks about Old Testament Israel that fell away in the wilderness and were destroyed before they made it to the promised land, and all these things happened to them as an example. 
In other words, the same thing can happen to you. Now, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The one that thinks he's standing, you better take heed. And one that thinks he'll never fall, better take heed. And the one that thinks, you know what, what I'm doing is okay, and everybody else thinks it's wrong, but I think it's okay, he better take heed lest he fall. Let's go to another text, Philippians chapter 2 and in verse 12. Philippians 2 and in verse 12. In Philippians 2, 12... Paul said, not only as it's been in, uh, that you've obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence, work out your own salvation. Now notice the phrase, with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation. It's a mathematical concept of carrying it out to its full end. Go all the way to the end with it. But you do it with fear and with trembling. Do it with fear that you're scared to death, that you, that you want to make sure you're doing it exactly right. Now, the same warning could be found in Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to forego that passage in interest of looking at another one in just a moment. So here's what we've seen. That hope eliminates hopelessness and it eliminates carelessness. But let's go further. It also eliminates overreaction. And what do we mean by that? Well, we can move from hopelessness to carelessness rather quickly. In other words, here's one over here in a state of hopelessness and we begin to encourage them, you can have hope. And the Bible says you do have hope and you can go to heaven. They could easily break away from hopelessness and overreact and go too far to carelessness. How so? Well, let's talk about some reasons for that. Some might be because of a misunderstanding of grace. Once we make them understand the grace of God enables you to be forgiven, there was a misunderstanding of grace in Romans, wasn't there? Remember the statement made in chapter 5 that where grace, sin abounded, grace did much more abound. However much sin there is, there's plenty of grace to take care of all your sin. Well then, Paul raised the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that the way that we're to interpret that? And his answer was, God forbid. That's not what that means. So a misunderstanding of grace can cause some to go from hopelessness to carelessness. Or perhaps it may be that there are many others that are careless and they seem to be okay and they seem to be accepted. I look at brother so-and-so, he's quite careless. Sister so-and-so, she's living quite careless. And because of their example, that might be encouraging me to be careless as well. So I've gone from hopelessness to carelessness. Now follow this one carefully. Hyper-negative uh, hyper preaching can create that spirit. How so? What do we mean by hyper-negative preaching? Preaching needs to be balanced. Bible teaching needs to be balanced. We, we need to condemn sin, but we also need to encourage right living. We need to condemn wrong, but we need to encourage that which is right. And so there needs to be a balance in that. Some preaching is out of balance where it's nothing but positive preaching all the time. It never deals with sin. There are some who go to the other extreme and all of their preaching and all their teaching is constantly condemning and as I call it, blistering britches all of the time. Now when that takes place, that hyper-negative preaching makes people begin to think we're living in a constant state of sin all of the time that we talked about a moment ago. Every one of us are nothing but a bunch of bad sinners all the time. You're sinning right now probably in thought and in deed as well. You're just a terrible sinner. That hyper-negative preaching creates that spirit. It also creates this spirit because we're living that way. If I have any hope at all, it's going to be just breaking away and living careless if I want to. That creates the very opposite of what it's trying to accomplish. Now, the last thing we want to mention is just talk about what hope involves. I know what it eliminates. 
But what does hope involve? Well, it eliminates carelessness, but it involves being careful. We need to understand that. Hope doesn't mean I'm going to heaven, but it also means I'm going to be careful in my living. We need to understand the seriousness of sin. James 1 in verse 15 said, When lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, it brings forth death. So I need to understand the serious nature of sin. In Ephesians chapter 5, see that you walk circumspectly, the text says. Bear with me just a minute, I'll give you another translation of that. See that you walk circumspectly, the New King James says. The American Standard says, look therefore carefully how you walk. That's what he means walking circumspectly. The New Century says, so be very careful how you live. The American Standard says, therefore be careful how you walk. The Holman says, pay careful attention to then how you walk. Here's the idea. If you're walking circumspectly, you're paying very careful attention how you live. You don't live carelessly, but you pay careful attention to every deed you're doing. In other words, you're careful. That's the idea. Look at 1 John 3 and in verse 3. Now this is an interesting passage because of the direction from which it comes. Now as you're turning there, let me remind you that quite often the Bible will talk about if you live right, therefore you have hope. That's true. This passage starts on the other side of hope and goes back to living right. Let's see if that's not the case. Look at verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him, that is we have hope in Christ, we have the hope of going to heaven, that we're going to see him as he is, verse 2, purifies himself even as he is pure. Because you do have hope, therefore you ought to live pure. In other words, because you have hope, you ought to be careful. In other words, you're going to watch, as 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 6 would teach. So you see the idea of hope means that we eliminate hopelessness and carelessness and overreaction, but it means we're going to be careful. But not only that, it's also going to mean that we're going to be hopeful that we're going to have confidence. Not a spirit of self-righteousness, but we're going to be confident. You see, that's a balanced view in contrast to that hyper-negative thing that we just talked about. Acts 20 and verse 7, preaching the whole counsel of God. Yes, we need to preach hard against sin, but we also need to preach hard and teach hard about confidence and encouragement and doing what's right. That's that balance that Acts 20 and verse 27 is talking about. And so that gives us hope. We need to give hope to people. That there is the hope of eternal life. What I need to realize is I can go to heaven. Let's finish with just a few of these passages. I can do this. I can go to heaven. Titus 1. I said Titus begins on the note of the hope of eternal life. So let's see what Titus says. We saw the other book, and that's the book of um, 1 Peter. Titus 1, and in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. So God promised eternal life. So I can, I realize I can go to heaven. I realize I can overcome. There's no temptation taking you, but such is as common to man. You see, when I'm being, I have hope then, I realize I can do what God expects of me. It's not one of those things where, where I, I know what God's wanting me to do, but I can't do that. I can't live up to it. I can't be perfect. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do whatever God wants me to do. And I can know that indeed I have the hope of eternal life. Let's close with that passage. 1 John 5 and verse 13, we read a moment ago. 
It's not that I just wish. It's not that I just desire. Oh, I wish I could go to heaven. Or I'd like to think. But now notice verse 13. I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know you have the hope of eternal life. So what have we seen? What we've seen is this. That if we indeed have hope. That eliminates this hopelessness, and it eliminates this carelessness and this overreaction, but it means that we're going to be hopeful, and we're going to be careful. And notice how those feed each other. You see, if, if, if I am careful, what that means is that's going to drive me being hopeful, and if I'm hopeful, that's going to drive me being careful. Because I have hope, I'm going to try to be careful. And because I'm careful, that gives me hope. And again, because I have hope that calls me, it's a, it drives one, each principle drives the other and eliminates hopelessness and carelessness. The child of God can have confidence, can have assurance, can have hope. We see what it eliminates and what it involves. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing? Angels are singing, redemption, sweet song.